Now, if you would, you can turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy. And we're going to be doing a message that's a little bit of an addendum to our discipleship series, our, our mission discipleship series. We're actually going to be jumping back into our series on Luke's Gospel, Kingdom Come, next week. But this morning, I want to turn our attention to Paul's letter to his protege in ministry, Timothy. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, in verse 12, Paul says this. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The Word of the Lord, may He write its truth upon our hearts. Would you bow your heads with me? Well, to you, the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, we open our hearts now this morning. To you, God, we open our hearts and our lives to submit them to the teaching of your word so that by the power of your spirit we could be changed by this powerful, effective word that never fails to accomplish what it purposes. So, Lord, we put our hope and our faith in your word. We ask that it would be active, living, cutting, healing, convicting. We ask that we would see Jesus. We pray this in His name. Amen. Well, one of Paul's favorite passages, one of his favorite sayings in his letters is one that you, you might not recognize. If I was to ask you, what are some of the, the, the little phrases Paul uses frequently throughout his letters and you came up with a top ten list Chances are this might not make the list, but it, but it happens frequently. I could, I could list off the dozen or so places where Paul uses this phrase, but the phrase is this. For example, in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, Be imitators of me. So he's writing to the church in Corinth and says, Be an imitator of me. That's partly what he's doing here in, Tim, in 1 Timothy. He's writing this letter to Timothy to instruct him how to pastor and lead churches. But he's also telling Timothy, be an imitator. In 1 Corinthians, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. It's a helpful notion. It's a challenging notion that actually informs our pursuit of discipleship. Discipleship, in part, is the calling to one another to be imitators of each other, to, to find those who are mature and maturing and growing in Christ's likeness and to imitate each other's faith. It's a biblical calling. D.A. Carson, Don Carson, one of the preeminent New Testament scholars of our day, 
he has a book in which he tells a story. I've actually heard him tell the story in person as well. That kind of draws home this, this idea of just the awesome importance of mature believers walking alongside other believers. And really believers in that proverb sense of being iron that sharpens iron. Of living our life together in community in such a way that we're, we're sharpening and, and increasing in holiness and drawing each other closer to Christ. Well, when Carson was an undergrad student at McGill University in Canada, he, he was a chemistry undergrad student, he and another believer started a Bible study. They wanted to reach out to unbelievers. So it was specifically a Bible study. They recruited three unbelievers to come to it, thinking probably only two would come. That way they wouldn't be outnumbered. All three of them came, as you'd expect, knowing Don Carson's history from that point forward. A few weeks later, there were 16 people coming to the study. But they realized pretty quickly as they were going through the Gospel of John that they were asking questions, the, the people in the Bible study, that were beyond their ability to answer. They were out of their depth. And so they got their heads together and they wondered, well, what should we do? Well, they knew of another guy on campus. His name was Dave Ward. And he had an incredible story of conversion, how the Lord had saved him. And he was now passionately evangelistic. He was a graduate student. They were undergraduate students. He, he was a little bit further along in his walk with Christ. And so they decided to have Dave come to a couple of their Bible studies and just field questions from folks. The best part is that Carson describes Dave as a quote-unquote rough jewel. He was a bit of an uncut diamond. He was a rough jewel. He was slapdash. I guess that's some sort of Canadian word. He was in your face. Carson said he really had no tact and little polish, but he was just that guy that you've probably met before who was aggressively evangelistic, but also powerful in his apologetics, powerful in his defense of the gospel and, and Christianity. And he was winningly bold. So even though he was just in your face with Jesus, people weren't turned off. They, they were drawn to it. And, and so Dave showed up to the study to field some of their questions. And he, he started out, he passed out some instant coffee. And they sat down to drink their coffee. And so he just started in the middle of the room, going around. And he looks at the first student and looks at him. And Dave says, why'd you come? So you kind of get the sense of who this guy is, right? Why'd you come? And the guy's kind of taken back. He says, well, long-winded answer. I, I've just been kind of interested in world religions, and I've been studying Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam, and I've got a friend who's Hindu, and so I'm talking with him, and I've been reading some of the Quran, and so I thought I might as well come to this study and hear a little bit about Christianity. And Carson says, Dave looked at him for a few moments and then said, sorry, I don't have time for you. <laughs> and the guy responds, I beg your pardon? So you kind of get this, he's raw, right? He's an uncut diamond. And the guy's, excuse me? He's offended. And Dave says, look, I'll loan you some books on world religions. I can show you how Christianity fits into all of this, why I think biblical Christianity is true, but you are just playing around. You're a dilettante. You don't really care about these things. You're just goofing off. I'm a graduate student myself. I don't have time to sit here and just piddle-paddle with you and, and, and get into little debates for the sake of debates. I don't have hours at my disposal to do in that. I can't waste it on people who are just playing around. And I think you're playing around. Turns to the next guy. <laughs> Why are you here? So if you're the next guy, you're like, you know, like, what are you going to say? And, and the next student says, well, he had grown up. He said, I grew up in, in a home that you guys would call liberal Christian home. And he just said, you know, I had great parents, great mother and father. I love us, love our siblings. We're, we're great members of the community. We go to church on Sundays, but we don't really think the Bible's literally true. Don't really buy into this whole idea of the resurrection. And, you know, just to be honest, as I look at it, he kind of said to Dave, 
what do you think you've got that I don't? Like, you have this different version of Christianity. What do you think you have that I don't? And so then, again, Dave stares at him. (laughs) This time, it's not just for a couple seconds. Carson said he stared at him for, like, three awkward minutes. You know, everyone's just kind of, like, moving around. You know, what's he going to say? He already told the other guy off. You're just a dilettante, right? What's he going to say to this guy? The first thing he says... Two to three minutes of silence. Watch me. And they all kind of sit back, and Dave says, watch me. Now, the other guy's name was actually Dave, and he said, again, in a very Canadian way, I beg your pardon? And Dave said, watch me. I've got an extra bed. You can move in with me. You can be my guest. I'll pay for all the food. You go to your classes, do whatever you have to do, but watch me. You watch me when I get up. You watch me when I interact with people. You watch what I say. You watch what moves me. You watch what I live for. Watch what I want in my life. You watch me for the rest of the semester, and then you tell me at the end whether or not there's a difference. Now, the other Dave didn't actually move in with Dave Ward, but he did watch him. And he started watching him and observing him and and talking with him. And as things developed, as he began to watch him, the Lord drew him. And the Lord opened his heart. Carson says that now, today, that that second Dave is a medical missionary serving for Christ on the field. But that compelling call, watch me. That's part of what Paul is showing us here. That's, That's part of what discipleship is about. Paul spends time in this passage not just talking about his ministry, not just talking about the gospel in theoretical terms out there, this doctrine, but Paul begins specifically praising God for the effect that the gospel has had on him personally. The gospel has reconfigured Paul's entire identity to such an extent that now all of his life is different. Paul's family members, his cousins, his mom and dad, If they had watched him before the gospel and watched him now, they would see a difference. Paul is convinced of it. The gospel has changed him. And so Paul, holding up here in 1 Timothy, the example of his own life, is going to show us how the gospel changes us, how the gospel deconstructs our old identities. Who are you? Straight A student? Who are you? Accomplished business person? Mother of five? Star athlete? Pastor? Community group? Who who are you? Well, all of those things, Paul says, get changed when you encounter Christ. Or they look different the more you encounter Christ. Your old lifestyles and your passions, they shift. In their place, believers become distinctly shaped by the cross. They get a cruciform, cruciform identity, an identity in a life that's shaped by the cross of Christ, by the gospel. To encounter the gospel, Paul shows us here, is to be changed by the gospel. As we'll see this morning, there's three things that that does in a believer's life. We're going to examine those three effects. First, this this cross shape, this gospel shape, this cruciform identity produces a desire to serve, and a strength to serve. 
It changes the selfish ways our hearts are wired and motivated. And it creates this, this servant-heartedness. Now, Paul begins this whole thing with a wordplay. He says he was entrusted with the gospel because God had found him faithful. Literally, it could read, Paul was considered faithful to be in faith with the gospel. This isn't meant to highlight, as it would first seem, Paul's suitability for ministry. It's not that Paul has opportunities for ministry because Paul is something extra extraordinarily special. Now, Paul is something special and extraordinarily gifted. No one in this room is as gifted as Paul. But that, Paul doesn't see, is the reason for why he's in ministry and doing the things he's doing. Rather, Paul looks at it, looks at his life, and he highlights God's grace. And Paul, years after his conversion, years into ministry, years with, with dealing with with churches of all shapes and sizes, some embracing the gospel, some drifting from it, all the the difficulties and troubles, Paul is still amazed by grace. He wasn't in faith and trusted with the gospel because he was worthy. Paul rather recognizes he was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He was an insolent opponent of the gospel. Acts 8.3 says, Paul was ravaging the church. In his former identity, he was attacking the people of God. Acts 26.11, Paul says of himself, And I punished them, Christians, often in all the synagogues and tried to make them, Christians, blaspheme. And in a raging fury against them, I persecuted them even in foreign cities. Paul wasn't just content to attack the Christians down the street or in his town, he was pursuing them all over the Mediterranean world. That's who Paul was. And despite that unworthiness, God gave the strength to make Paul trustworthy. Worthy of being entrusted with the gospel. The gospel not only empowers Paul, it also makes him happy to serve. You notice what Paul begins with? The passage starts out with thanksgiving. I thank Him who has given me strength. I thank Him. I'm I'm grateful that I get to serve. I am grateful that He's given me the opportunity to serve and that He's given me the strength to serve. Not everybody thinks about serving in that way, right? A lot of us, opportunities to serve often seem more like burdens to serve. But not Paul. He starts by praising God. Nothing he's accomplished in Paul's mind is primarily due to his ability or his prowess. It's all owing to God's mercy and God's grace. And this isn't just the lip service, right, of the microphone stuck in, in the athlete, like, what do you have to say about the Oh, you know, praise God and da 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 And you just get the sense it's just a, a little phrase they're throwing out there. Paul is pausing. I... Thank God. He took me, someone who hated him, and blasphemed him, and attacked his people, and he made me fit to serve. Praise Jesus. Paul is amazed by grace. Paul's identity had changed. 
and with it so it is understanding of service. Paul initially is scandalized by this whole idea of the cross. This cross is this shameful way for someone to die. And here's this Jesus crackpot saying he's the Messiah, but he was hung on a cross. He can't be who he said he was. The cross proves it. But as God reveals to Paul, the cross does prove it. But in the opposite way Paul assumed. The cross shows Paul that Jesus, the Son of God, is the servant of everyone. And so that all who follow Jesus must also serve. It revealed that servant. Now the word service in the Greek is actually the same word we have for ministry. We, we like to talk about ministry, right? And we have this very narrow idea of what ministry is. Ministry is, is maybe what a community group leader does. Ministry is what a pastor does or, or, or it's what a deacon does. That's, that's the narrow definition of what ministry is. That's not how Paul is viewing it. Ministry, broadly, see, broadly speaking, broadly understood, means service. And ministry, the service, is, is a form of worship. So for the housewife, doing chores and, and laundry and dishes and, and cleaning, there is a service that is empowered by God, an extension of Christ shaping who they are for the sake of the gospel. To the guy that, that mows the grass, the guys serving on the lawn team, the people that come and, and, and clean the church during the week. Thank you for serving, we would say. Paul might say, thank you for ministering. Thank you for recognizing the grace of God, strengthening you for your ministry. It's all service. So therefore, it's all ministry. And God empowers all of it, and God is honored by all of it. But we strip this word of its power if we limit it to this notion of ministry is something for leadership, or, or ministry is something just a few people do. Paul, have, Paul has is the service, right? The ministry of being an apostle. But he has the identity of a servant. And he's not alone. Paul in Romans 1 says, Paul, writing to the church in Rome, a servant of Christ Jesus. James, the half-brother of Jesus, in his letter. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. Letter after letter, people recognizing themselves. The gospel functioning in their lives in our church changes people from thinking me first, seeking attention to people thinking others first, and seeking service and being happy and joyful and God-glorifying in their service. Grateful no matter what the role of service is. If Paul turned to us today and said, watch me. right? So, so Paul does the Dave Ward, or Dave Ward is doing the Paul, right? Paul looked at us and said, watch me. What do you think we'd be most struck by? We would see Paul the scholar. We would see Paul the preacher. We would see Paul walking out pastoral care, leading churches, planting churches. But I don't think that those would be the things that would be most prominent necessarily. I certainly don't think they would be the things that Paul would want us to first see. In today's context, Paul wouldn't care a whit 
that he had a million Twitter followers. And Paul would have a million Twitter followers. Watch me. And if we watched him, we would see a servant. Someone happy in Christ Jesus. More than willing to clean the toilets. Looking at his, looking at his identity and saying, I was a, a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. I, I'm more fit to clean the toilets than I am to preach. I think it brings us to two questions. Do you serve? Do you minister? The cross doesn't create consumers. The cross doesn't create people who are demanding to know what the other people sitting around them can do for them. Well, I'm going to try out a new community group because the last one didn't really do much for me. They weren't really doing a whole lot to meet my needs. There's a part of that that's just a twisted understanding of, of what God is calling us to do together in community. Rather, it creates servants, people who are so inspired by the mercy of God that they relish any opportunity to serve. So just by way of application, where are you serving? Where are you ministering? Where are you feeling God calling you to use your gifts for the good of the body and the people God has put in your life? And then, Secondly, do you serve joyfully? Paul isn't starting these letters. Paul, still a servant. But I'm also an apostle. This is like his chosen de designation. Paul, a bond servant of Christ Jesus. Paul, I am a servant. I am one enlisted as a servant, as a bond servant of the King of Kings. better to be a doorkeeper in the house of God, right? And Paul rejoices in it. So, so are you grateful in your service? And that takes intentionality, doesn't it? Because my default position isn't, oh yeah, I get to clean the toilets again. It, it takes perspective. It takes being shaped by the cross and what Christ did willingly, joyfully going to the cross, despising its shame, right? I love how Nancy Lee DeMoss puts the difference between someone who is a grumbler and, and someone who, who's grateful in their service. Proud, unbroken people desire self-advancement. They desire recognition. They desire others to serve them. In their minds, the ministry is privileged to have me. Broken people. I would say, my thought, gospel remembering, cruciform people. Broken people have a sense of unworthiness. They are thrilled to serve in any capacity and love when others get the credit. And love when others get the credit. That's a convicting one. In their minds, I don't deserve to serve in this ministry. How did I get the privilege of being the guy that gets to mow the grass at this church? How did I get the distinct privilege of mowing the grass so that the first impression of people when they come to Providence is just, is just beautiful lawn? 
And it's starting to stir their hearts for the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of the gospel-shaped people they're going to encounter in there. How did I get the privilege of, of being the guy that drives this mower and puts gas in it? Do you know who I was? And God, in His mercy, has given me the privilege of sitting on the mower. I get to serve Jesus. I get to serve His bride today. Cruciform identity stirs up a desire for service and gives us the strength for service. It also produces what I like to call Christ esteem. Christ esteem. This is this is different than self esteem. We we heard of some friends in the Twin Cities. There was there was a conference. It was a big women's conference, and I can't even remember the name of it. So it's not like I'm trying to hide the name of it from you. But essentially, this conference was just all of these women, and there was these well-known speakers that were going to be there, and it was, we're coming as, as women, as Christian women, to go to this conference and, and to be inspired. And the worship we found from some of our friends, the worship at the conference, it wasn't like they're singing Chris Tomlin or, or Matt Redmond or the Gettys, or, or they're singing old hymns or, or, or new songs, but just they're singing about Christ and the gospel no, they were singing, this is my fight song. And songs of that nature. They took basically just Katy Perry and, and songs from the culture and sang them as worship songs. And that example of their worship was really the tone of the conference. That's what the conference was. It was just taking a secular gospel of, of self-esteem and you can do it! You're strong enough! You're powerful enough! Go get them! God loves you! It was the whole notion of, of, of what the conference leaders thought they needed most of all. But that is not what Paul shows us. And that's not what we need. In verses 13 to 15, But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. My favorite passage of the Scripture. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. He doesn't give us, this is my fight song. He doesn't give us, look at how special you are. Of course God saved you. You are the most specialist person in the world. Your shoebox is full of the most participation ribbons any fifth grader has ever gotten. Of course Jesus saved you. No, Paul says, I received mercy. Not because I was amazing, but because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And so the grace of God, I got mercy because I needed mercy. For the first time in the letter, Paul spells out exactly what the gospel is. The phrase, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. It probably means it's a common creed. It's, it's a slogan of the early church. What's the slogan? What, what's the, the, the quick Twitter version of the gospel in the early church? Christ Jesus came into the world to save special people. No, He came into the world to save sinners. And it's also intensely personal. We see Paul's unwavering recollection of his former life. 
Formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy. There's this threefold description. Blasphemer, persecutor, insolent. It, it's progressing. Paul goes from, from hating Jesus to actually leading persecution against the followers of Jesus to then just this arrogant, sneering, boastful way in which he's doing it. But the former sins are offset by the possession of his new identity in Christ. Now he has mercy and faith and love. God has graciously turned a despicable religious nut into a man ready to serve God's mission for humanity. To pour his life out as a drink offering. Paul isn't saved because he's smarter than everyone else. Paul's writing this letter to Timothy in part because there's some weird doctrine going on in the church in Ephesus. Paul isn't saved because he's smarter than the heretics at Ephesus, even though he is smarter than them. (laughs) Timothy isn't called to defend the truth because he's a morally superior person. You're not sitting here today because you're better than your neighbor. Because you are more spiritually attuned to real stuff. That's not why you're here. That's not why you're leaning in. That's not why you're singing those songs. Not according to Paul's calculus. Not according to how the scriptures teach us. Paul rips away the pride of being right and recognizing that he's indebted to mercy. Paul was once a heretic. He was an abuser of the law. But he's been changed from blasphemer to worshiper. From persecutor to willing sufferer from this violently arrogant person to a stunningly humble one. Paul describes this this deluge of God's grace. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me. It's like this river of grace that's spilling its banks and flowing over Paul. John Stott says, Grace flooded with faith, a heart previously filled with unbelief, and flooded with love, a heart previously polluted with hate. But listen to how Paul applies the gospel to himself. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. It completely diffuses our pride. It's the complete opposite of the self-esteem gospel. Nothing in the cross promotes pride. It crushes our self-esteem. But in place of our self-esteem, it promotes Christ as more glorious. Listen, Listen to how personal Paul makes the gospel to his identity. Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I was the worst of them all. Nobody was as bad as me. He calls himself a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. It's like, You ever introduce yourself to people like that? I used to be just foul-mouthed. I used to be arrogant. I used to be nasty. I used to be horrible to be around. Praise God for His grace. (laughs) But those descriptors actually aren't bad enough for Paul. Actually, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the foremost of sinners. That's what the gospel declares about Paul. Surely he's not really the worst sinner he knows, right? Like, like surely there's other people that are worse sinners. This has to be Paul being a little bit dramatic for effect. 
He's showing us with a little hyperbole how we're supposed to be humble because of the cross, right? No, that's not it at all. Paul has seen that the heart truly humbled by the cross responds in only one way. The convicting work of the Holy Spirit has rendered all of their comparisons to other men's sinfulness useless. There's only one human heart that Paul really knows, and it's his own. And through the lens of the gospel, it says he's looked at it, he's seen it. Paul can't say what's in your heart or what's in your heart, but he knows what's in his heart. And so he recognizes God's grace has acted on him, even though he was the worst sinner in the room. Paul is convinced. He's being brutally, accurately honest. J.I. Packer makes an awesome point about how Paul describes himself as you go through the letters. There's this progression to how Paul describes himself as time passes. So Paul's writing these letters to the churches, right? That's what this, this is. It's a letter to Timothy. You've got the letter to Ephesians as they go on. Well, as time passes, Paul's descriptions of himself change. In 1 Corinthians 15.9, around probably 80, 55, 80, 59, somewhere around there. He says, I am the least of the apostles. Now, as we look back in church history, we all disagree with that. And we probably say Paul is the greatest of the apostles. In AD 63, in the letter to Ephesus, he says, I am the very least of all the saints. And now in AD 64, imprisoned, facing his death, he says, I am the foremost of sinners. As the years go by, Paul goes lower. He actually grows downward. It's so the opposite of what we see in our culture, right? The more you you read someone's LinkedIn profile, right, and then they're just they're increasing their significance. Someone accumulates accolades, right? And now they're thinking in their head, you know what? I am the goat. I am the greatest accountant of all time. Nobody balances books like me, man. If only they knew. That's how most of our minds work. I am the greatest fill in the blank of all time. Look at time has progressed. How much I have grown. I am freaking amazing. But Paul is shaped by the gospel, and he doesn't think that way. As the years go by, he goes lower. His self-esteem sinks, and our culture would say, that's terrible! Get this guy some counseling! His self-esteem is decreasing! How will he function in life? But as Paul's self-esteem sinks, his rapture of praise, his adoration for God, so wonderfully saved him increases. Paul goes lower and the glory of the gospel in Christ Jesus goes higher. Galatians 6.14 But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Humility and a passion for praise are these twin characteristics that together indicate a life being shaped by the gospel. The Bible is full of self-humbling, man bowing down before God, and doxology. Man lifting his eyes and praising God. 
man bowing low and then looking up and seeing God. That's what the gospel does to us. The Psalms strike both those notes again and again. And so does Paul in his letters. Watch me. A humble man. Watch me. A man in love with Christ. Undone by the beauties of the gospel. Which brings us to our last point. Cruciform identity produces a witnessing worship. It produces a witnessing worship. He says, I received mercy for this reason. I was the foremost of sinners, but the reason was this, that in me, as the foremost, as the worst, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. Paul's conversion is the prototype conversion. If we had asked the new members this morning, tell us your conversion story, they would all be a version of Paul's conversion. They would have all said, I was walking down Flum, and I was leading some people that I was going to throw in jail for worshiping Jesus. And I got to the stoplight, and instead of a normal stoplight, this beam nailed me, and I fell down in in the middle of the intersection, and traffic screeched to a halt, and people are wondering, what's going on with this guy? And I heard a voice speak. It wasn't the babble over at Quick Trip on Flamin College. It was a voice from heaven. Why are you... No, that's not how you were saved, was it? What do we mean Paul's conversion is the prototype? Paul's conversion is the prototype in the sense that every conversion should result and does result in this identity change that Christ Jesus might display His perfect patience in us as an example to those who were to believe. Do you ever think of that's why God saved you? Well, well, God saved me so I would stop doing those things. God saved me so that I can go to heaven. God saved me so I could have eternal life. True, 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 true. God saved me so that in saving me, the people who knew me before he saved me would see me and say, holy smokes, this God has to be real. I knew you before and I know you now. And you think, well, I grew up in a Christian home. Like, I didn't have, like, the crazy prodigal son experience. Like, are they really going to say that? Yes. The grace of God changes us to such an extent. It, it transforms our identity to such an extent that even little Johnny, growing up in the church, minding his P's and Q's, always saying the right thing, he's polite, he looks adults in the eye, he knows how to introduce himself, always does his homework. He's a really good little baseball player and he always says the other kids are better. But when the grace of God acts on little Johnny, it changes him. It changes him to such an extent that people see the gospel is real. He's different. He's not going through the motions. He's not parroting what he thinks he's supposed to say. He's not serving because mom and dad said, I've got to serve. But there's this overflow of of real life change that happens. 
there's no moving beyond the gospel for Paul. There's no leaving the foot of the cross. Calvary is just this joyful obsession. Look at who I was, and Jesus saved me. I was the worst sinner you've ever met. And now I get to serve him. I received mercy. And that should shape how we gather together. When we get together in our discipleship groups or, or our community groups. Man, Hank is bad. He is messed up. He's going to share again, and I'm just going to leave there freshly amazed at how screwed up his life is. <laughs> no. I was reading in the Word this week, coming thinking of you guys in discipleship group, and I was just, I was reading Paul just praising God in this passage, and I was just affected. I don't worship God like that. I need to grow in, in how I worship. That's so different from, from the person sitting in worship, right? And kind of looking around like, that person doesn't seem very engaged. They sure got here late this morning. No, it's the person, praise God for His grace. You know, there's, just, there's no awareness. If they're aware of the other people, it's just, I get to sing with these people. I get to sing with these trophies of grace. We get to sing together. I want to sing loud so they can hear my voice and they can be reminded I am joyfully following Jesus. This week was hard and it was brutal, but I can come here and be reminded God's grace is real and it's sustaining me. Paul's identity in Christ is literally soul winning because by its nature, it's worshipful. He's not the Christian who repulses and avoids sinners. He's not the believer so consumed with, with misplaced self-righteousness that he forgets who Christ is and then repels unbelievers. No, he's ever aware that he's the worst sinner in the room and then he's holding up Christ as the most precious gift ever given. And that just forms his life and, and who he is. He finishes, To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. It doesn't really fit with the flow of thought. This is Paul, inspired by the Spirit, writing this letter to Timothy, and all of a sudden, he's just filled and he's worshiping. Is your identity in Christ contagious? Would people see that and sense that about you? This week, we went back up to Iowa for my grandpa's funeral. So my grandpa was 92, almost 92, three months away from being 92. He's an old man. And he, he was losing it towards the end. One of the best parts of the service was the other pastor who I was officiating the service with described going to visit my grandpa in the nursing home. And my grandpa was a lifelong farmer. And not just a farmer, he actually bred purebred hogs, which kind of sounds like something that you wouldn't want to admit and tell people. But if you're from Northwest Iowa, it's like, I breed purebred hogs. That's kind of a big deal. They had a sign right outside Sioux Center. Big sign, Wasink Swine Farm. Purebred boars and gilts and Hershires and all this other stuff. He would get that sign repainted every couple, of su every couple summers so everybody knew. And he's losing it towards the end. The pastor says, you know, I'd come and visit him and he had some lucid moments and some where it was drifting. And one time he says, you know, 
it's a pretty big place. And the pastor's like, yeah, it's got a lot of room here. Talking about the nursing home. My grandpa looked at him and said, you could fit a lot of hogs in here. <laughs> and the pastor said, in, in here? In the nursing home? Yeah. You could fit a lot of hogs in here. <laughs> like, to the end. He's still just the farmer and thinking about life like that. But one of the best parts about the service was I got to read from Psalm 103. My grandpa was not the Apostle Paul by any measure. He was a simple, fingers-in-the-dirt Iowa farmer. Never got beyond the eighth grade. When he moved into the nursing home, it was the first time in his life he hadn't lived in the farmhouse he was born in. Like literally was birthed in the farmhouse. When he got married, his mom and dad moved out so he and my grandma could move in, and he lived in that house for 91 years. He was a simple man. But I got to read Psalm 103. It's a great psalm. I love the psalm. Matt Redman wrote 10,000 reasons based on the psalm. But I got to read it because my grandpa had memorized it. And just a simple man. But he had memorized this psalm. And when I talked with my cousins, they would talk about you'd go around and be on the tractor or be lugging the, the buckets with feed and just doing the chores throughout the day. I mean, sun up to sundown work. You smell like pig poop. Like when we pull up to Iowa and the doors open, our kids always say, it smells. <laughs> and it does. And I always say, Grandpa says it smells like money. <laughs> <coughs> Nothing incredible about his life plenty of people who would think, I would never want that life. I would never want to do that. But he would go through every day literally with a psalm in his heart. And just serving. Serving his wife. Serving his family. Serving his community. With this psalm treasured up. Dave Ward says to that guy, watch me. And we can have this idea, oh, he must have been this radical, bold, evangelist, Billy Graham style. I could never do that. Paul says, watch me. Oh, that's Paul. He's the apostle. I could never do that. My grandpa, he could have said, watch me. And you would have seen this. And that's my heart and vision for us as a body. That in our faith, in our treasuring of the gospel, from the simplest to the most complex faith in the room, we could turn to each other and say, watch me. I'm going to read Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits who forgives all your iniquities and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, to me, the foremost of sinners. 
He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. And His righteousness to children's children. To those who keep His covenant and remember to do His commandments. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you His angels, you mighty ones who do His word. Bless the Lord, all His hosts, His ministers, His servants who do His will. Bless the Lord, all His works, in all the places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Would you bow your heads? Lord, we want to bless You. We want to be reminded, like the psalmist, that You do not count our transgressions, our iniquities against us but that your steadfast love reaches to the heavens. Lord, we want to be shaped by that. We want to be shaped by the gospel. We want to serve in the joy of the gospel, knowing that your Son, Jesus Christ, took on flesh in the form of a servant to die in our place so he could redeem us. And Lord, we want to worship We want to live our lives in such a way that we bear witness to the grace of God, to your perfect patience in saving us and forming us to the image of your Son. So Lord, we bless you. We bless your holy name. We bless the name of Jesus. Amen.